The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I once read of a short conversation between a tree and a bush. I don't remember all of the details, but it went something like this. The tree and the bush talked back and forth and discussed a few things like the weather and speculated on the coming winter. And then the tree brought up something odd. He, he said, Bush, I don't know how to put this, but I saw some thing the other day. Something kind of odd. It was alive, not like a rock, but more like us. It was alive. And it moved, but not in the wind. It moved along. It wasn't rooted. Strange. Nonsense, replied the bush. Everybody knows that you can't be alive unless you're rooted into the ground, drawing nutrients up from the earth. That can't happen. Next thing you're going to tell me is that it wasn't green. Well, it wasn't green. It's brown all over, unless you count the green grass that it ate. It ate? It ate the grass? Is grass all right? No, 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 no. Grass is fine. There's more grass. But it did eat. It was strange. I don't know. It wasn't rooted. It wasn't green. I don't know how it got its nutrients, but it was alive and it moved. What do you make of this thing? Mr. Tree and Mr. Bush are, are puzzled, going back and forth, trying to make sense of something that's different than them, but not entirely different. Some similarities. It lives. Moves, some obvious differences. They don't know what to make of it outside of their categories, but it's not hard for you. Your mind instantly leaps to something like deer or rabbit or bear or squirrel, something like that. You've got categories for that. You have a higher understanding than they do. It's highly possible that this morning you might identify more with Mr. Tree trying to get your mind around something that's right there, revealed in front of you, but is hard to grasp, mind-boggling even. The nature of Jesus. The dual nature of Jesus. Dual, too. We've been progressing through the book of John and letting John display for us Jesus. Chapter by chapter we go through and he holds up Jesus like a precious jewel to us and turns him just a little bit and shows us a different facet every week. Something to marvel at. Last week we just finished, two weeks ago we finished chapter 8 and we saw there that Jesus is the one who can liberate a person from bondage, from slavery to sin. He, he cuts the bolt that locks us in and sets us free. But more than just setting us free and then leaving us there, he takes us and he nurtures us all along back to the full life for which we were meant to be, for which we were made. It's the end of chapter 8. Before that, we saw Jesus talking to the same group of people, declaring that I am the light of the world. He's the light come into the world to chase out darkness and evil and wickedness. It was in chapter 8. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I'm the light of the world. I chase away darkness. I'm what you need. Those are the main points. This morning, I'm not going to move on to chapter 8, chapter 9, quite yet, because while those were the main points in chapter 8, there was something kind of there just under the surface that I want to address. 
Those two big things I just talked about, those were the main dishes on the table, if you will. But off to the side, there's a side dish. It's been there for quite a while, for a lot of meals. It's still been on the table, and I want to talk about that specifically this morning. Specifically, we're going to talk about Jesus and his nature, who he is. So I'm going to pause here and preach a somewhat topical sermon on the dual nature of Jesus. Something that's clearly laid out, yet is mind-boggling and kind of hard to, hard to come to grips with, hard to grasp. It's right here, though, in John 8 and a lot of other places as well. Let me read. I'm going to read in chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 23 down to 29 to give us a little bit of context. And I'm going to mostly be focused on one verse, verse 28. But I'll pull in some verses from somewhere else, other places, because this is a topical sermon. So John 8, verses 23 to 29 He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, but I always do the things that are pleasing to him. This passage comes right amidst Jesus' debate with some Pharisees and some other Jewish folks, specifically debating his right to make the statement, I am the light of the world. We've talked about that already. I'm going to focus in on verse 28 to to address a basic issue, though, about Jesus' personhood, his nature. This is one of the most important yet most complicated and difficult to understand doctrines in all of Christianity. Jesus, one person, Jesus, has two natures. He is the second person of the triune God, the nature of God, fully God. And he is a human, fully man, joined together in one person. It's hard to understand, but it's right here. Back-to-back even in this verse. I'm going to pull out three points from this verse, three observations about Jesus, and use it to talk about a portion of the doctrine of Christ. I emphasize portion because if I had all year, and if I had a lot more knowledge than I have, I still wouldn't be able to exhaust this topic. It's an important and large one. I'm going to talk about three points from verse 28. First observation. First thing I notice here, Jesus is fully and perfectly human. So we're going to talk about his human nature first. He is fully and perfectly human. He is man. Verse 28, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak only as the Father has taught me. Jesus is fully submissive to the Father. Do you see that there? Speak nothing on my own authority. Only what the Father has taught me. Or very next verse, verse 29. I only do the things that are pleasing to him. We're down in verse 38. 
I speak of what I have seen from my Father. Or 42, I come not of my own accord, but of his who sent me. Or verses 49 and 50, I honor my Father, I do not seek my own glory. Or for this chapter, the very last verse, verse 55, I know him and I keep his word. That's it for this chapter. There's a lot more statements in the book and elsewhere, but that suffices to make the point. Jesus is submissive to the Father. In some way, he is beneath him and looks to him for direction and for order. He takes instruction from him. He is taught by him. He learns. You get the basic picture here. Jesus is a man submitted to God. Now, I don't have to really work very hard at making this point. In today's world, this is pretty readily accepted. Of course he is. Critics are quick to point this out. Critics of Christianity say to Christians, how in the world can you Christians say that Jesus is fully God when you read this kind of evidence? When you see these things, wouldn't God have authority? How does God not have authority? If he were God, how does he have to learn anything? If he were God, how does he take instruction from somebody else? How does he not seek his own glory if he's God? He's not God. He's a human being. Maybe a prophet or something like that. Maybe a godly man, but, but a man. And they're right. Partially. Partially. He is a man, absolutely. Baby Jesus had much to learn. The Bible itself says that he grew in wisdom and in stature. He had a real body that could bleed and die. Absolutely, he's a man. But just a man? Absolutely not. We'll come to that in a little bit. But, but stay here for a moment. He is human. Think about this. For 30-some years, Jesus lived on the earth like a guy from Galilee. Like an ordinary man. Not without sin, surely. And that made a difference, but probably not an impossible difference. People probably just thought he was a really nice guy. He was a good guy, a good neighbor, a good friend. But he lived here amidst a real world. He experienced the awkwardness of the teen years. First century Palestine style. He dealt with sexuality as he grew up. He had hormones. He did. He encountered money shortages growing up in a single parent home without a father. He grew up and he had to learn a trade. He had to become skilled at something. Make things with his hands, bid out jobs, deal with angry customers. All the while doing that in a context of political corruption, legalistic religion, facing an occupying foreign army. This was his world. He lived in that like a real person because he was a real person. And amidst all of that, he made time to study the scriptures. He didn't just get the Bible downloaded into his head. He studied. He grew in wisdom. He had a prayer life that flourished and was vibrant. He made time for those things amidst that kind of world. He made time for relationships. Cared for his mother, his friends Lazarus, and Mary and, Mar Mary and Martha, other people as well. He knew emotions like pain and sorrow and joy and humor. He was a real man. He didn't have a halo around his head. Didn't speak with a British accent. 
didn't have a white robe with a red sash while everybody else was wearing brown. He was an ordinary guy, a real person, yet always and fully oriented towards God, his Father. He lived constantly with his eyes on him. My will is to do your will. What is your will for me today? What would you have me to do? What would you have me to say to them? Which way should I go? Always oriented towards God the Father, even though it cost him his life. He lives like this. He lives, speak, Father, like we're supposed to, but don't. That's how he lives, always. And he lives like that in a locale. Just described it a little bit. In a place, in an environment. Right there, in a town, amongst people. He's real. Now, at some level, that gets complicated. How can the omnipresent God be in a locale? How can the omniscient God be taught, learn something? That's hard to understand. In some way, his being is limited by his fullness of humanity. If he's a real human being, he has to be in a place. His body has to occupy a spot. Has to. In some way, he's limited. Some people have described it like this. Maybe this, maybe this analogy helps. If you think of a world-class sprinter who comes to a picnic and ties himself to me in a three-legged race, he's not any less of a world-class sprinter, but he might lose. He's voluntarily limited himself in a way, though he is not diminished in himself. Still has the same capabilities. Maybe that helps you. The Bible does not explain it. It just declares it. This is who he is. Half of who he is. It's part of the picture. We'll come to some more here. But think about what this means here. We're going to have to hold this intention with something else that we're going to talk about, but think about some of what this means. Jesus is fully human. The gap between God and man has been bridged there are a lot of ramifications for that. I want to talk about one specifically. The greatest one applies to the cross. We're going to come to that later. But next to that, I think the greatest one probably has to deal with our sanctification. Speaking to Christians, your and my sanctification. The humanity of Jesus, the full humanity of Jesus, helps us in sanctification in at least two ways. First, Jesus showed us he, he lived out for us what full, mature Christianity is to be. What we're supposed to look like. How we're supposed to live oriented towards God. He lived it out in front of us. You know how people used to wear, maybe still do, those WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do? Those were fads some time back. In some ways, that's a little misleading because there are some things that Jesus might do at any moment, like walk on water or look into a person's heart that we can't do and shouldn't try to do. But generally speaking, the idea is a sound one. If you're sitting and you're thinking, what would Jesus do in this situation? You're probably thinking about what is the righteous thing in this situation because whatever he would do would be right. But expand that beyond just how should I treat this person right here. From my way of looking at it, the most remarkable thing about Jesus, given all of who he is, we'll talk about in a minute, his God nature, 
given all of who he is, the most remarkable thing that Jesus did was make time to commune with God. So he shows us the path to walk, and he shows us how we are to walk it. Communing with the Father through the same means that you have, the Scripture and prayer. Jesus didn't have like a third way or or another separate way that, that he communicated with God. He used the same stuff. He knew the Scriptures and he prayed. You can too. What would Jesus do? He'd read. He'd pray. He'd walk with God. First way that his full humanity helps us in sanctification is that he shows us the path to walk and the human means to walk it. Shows us what to do. But the second way is a little more profound, I think. It's hinted at in, in Hebrews chapter 4. You know, Hebrews 4, 15. You can write that down and look at it later. Hebrews 4, 15 reminds us, we do not have a high priest. It's talking about Jesus in heaven now, serving there as a high priest for believers. Priest is a go-between between people and God. In the book, Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have that kind of priest, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Why can he say that? How is he tempted in every way? Because he was fully human. He walked here on the earth and went through everything that you've gone through. In every little particular detail? No. Close enough, though. He's walked in your shoes. You don't have a God who's distant. You have a God who is near to you, knows you, has been where you've been. And so, therefore, the verse continues, let us confidently draw near to him. Go up to the throne of grace and receive from him the necessary, the needed mercy and grace here in your particular time of need. He knows your need. In this time, right here, wherever you are, he knows your need. He knows your place. He's been there. And he knows what mercy and grace to apply. And how to do it. In what combination. In what timing. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, but he has been here in your shoes. He looks at you, you approach him, and he says, I will stand between you and the Father, and I will ask him, Father, would you give to this person, my brother, my sister, would you give to him this and this and this? Give to her that and that. And he always answers his son's request. He says, yes. And what he gives is exactly what you need. He asks for the right thing. He's able to sympathize with you and he understands you. Let that be an enticement to come. Let that be an enticement to come to him. Satan wants to tell you, particularly at your points of failure, how do you have any right to go into the presence of God? How can you draw near to his throne? How dare you? Maybe clean up your act and then go. Satan's message to you. You're in a time of need. That's the time when you don't draw near to him. Christ's message to you is at that time of need, come near in confidence. I understand. You will find in me what you need. I understand. This is a very real, very personal Jesus. Close to you. 
fully human, draw near to him. Come. Come by the means. Tells you the path to walk. Tells you the means by how to walk it. And then gives you confidence that when you use the means to come, you'll find grace. He'll give you what you need. All of that is rooted in his full humanity. That's why he can sympathize with you. He's been tempted in every way like you. It's half the picture, though. Jesus is fully human. Hold on to that. Don't let go of that. But we need to also consider this, the second point. As much as he is fully human, he is also equally, fully, and perfectly divine. Second point. He's equally, fully, perfectly divine. Fully man and fully God. In him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Christ, Colossians 2. But I want to show it to you in the same verse here because it's important to see these things side by side. You can pull one thing from some place and mess up the context and something else from somewhere else mess up the context and you can come with some interesting ideas. But when they're right next to each other in the same sentence, it speaks more powerfully. It's back in John 8, 28. Middle of that verse. Lifted me up, then you will know that I am He. Then you will know that I am He. He's repeating that from up, up above in verse 24 when he said, You will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He said that to the people. And they heard that, but they skipped over the part about the warning about dying in their sins. And they asked him, Who are you? They heard something that kind of caught their attention for a second. And they said, What? Are you saying what I think you're saying? Who are you? And he responds to them, Just what I've been saying all along. Just what you've been hearing all along. Chapter 1. The Word who was in the beginning with God, God. That Word became flesh. That's what I've been telling you. I am that Word. I am the fulfillment of the promises to Jacob. I am the temple where people come to meet God. They come to me They meet God. I am these things. I am the one who walks on water as the commander of nature. I am the one who gives life to whom I choose. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am He truly, truly. I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Again and again and again and again, he's laying this case out in front of them. What does all that mean? He is the fully submissive human, subordinate to God the Father here on earth in his actions and his activities, but not subordinate to him. At the same time, he is the one who does all of these things that are ascribed to God in the Old Testament, gives water, gives life, gives light. He does those things and he drives that point home by taking onto himself the title of the I Am. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob sent Moses to liberate his people from slavery and he said, tell them that the I am who I am sent you. The one who is. Never became who is. That's the one who sent you. 
again and again and again. That's, that's the God of the Old Testament. Written in all capital letters in your Bible. L-O-R-D. Isaiah 41, verse 4. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the I am who always was, always is, and always will be. The only God anywhere, ever, at all. The power behind all things. Not just here in our galaxy as if there was another galaxy somewhere else, some other God. No. The only God anywhere, at all, ever. The I am. The world is full of idols that we people, we men and women, try to turn into gods. And the world is full of men and women who would be gods if they could be. There's only one God who became man. Only one. Jesus. Fully submissive, humanly, fully sovereign God. And they got that. Verse 59, they pick up stones to kill him. Just like in chapter 5. Just like in chapter 10. Why, do you, why are you trying to kill me? Not because you do good works, Jesus, but because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Crystal clear what they heard him say, what they're after him for. I am God, says Jesus. I am the I am. Fully submissive, fully sovereign, human, born in a manger who needs to grow in wisdom and stature, learn and be taught, and the second person of the triune God who made everything anywhere at all. Both the God of the universe, fully God, baby in a manger, fully man. And what happened in that manger is that God and man were, were zipped together to make one. Like a zipper. You look at a zipper and you see, you can still see the, the, two, the two lines of teeth there, the two sets of teeth. They're joined together. Though. You can't just pull them apart. They're stuck there. But they're not melted together either. You can still see the differences. They're in one person, two natures. How does that be? How can that be? How does that work? There I'm with Mr. Tree. I don't know. That's a good question. How can that be? How can fully God be joined to fully man? I can, I can understand how a, a man might become kind of godly. Or how God might take on the appearance of a man. Like a ghost that looks like a man, for instance. People have suggested all these things in history. None of them are true. The scripture speaks against them all in different ways. In a lot of ways it says more of what it isn't than what it is. It just declares... God and man have been zipped together, never to be separated. The second person of the Trinity has become flesh. Somehow the divine nature of Jesus knows all things, like how he reads people's minds and knows who genuine believers are, knows which disciple is going to betray him. We've seen that here. Knows that Peter is going to betray him three times before the rooster crows. He knows that and yet needs to be taught also. 
to grow up. I doubt that one-year-old Jesus had any cognitive understanding of Judas's betrayal. These things put together somehow. It's, it's stunning. It's incomprehensible to us. So are deer to trees, I would suggest. In Jesus, and in him alone, uniquely, perfectly submitted man has been joined to perfectly sovereign God. And this is seen most clearly in one place in particular. That's our third point. Where is submissive humanity and sovereign majesty most clearly joined? There's a third point. This is long here. I'll say it twice. The climactic display of the submissive, human, sovereign, divine Jesus is seen in his lifting up. Say it again. The climactic display of the submissive, human, sovereign, divine Jesus is seen in his lifting up. The cross and what follows it. His resurrection and his ascension back into heaven. Verse 28 again. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, that I act under the Father's authority, etc. The nature of Jesus is on display every hour of every day, but the great hour, at this point in Jesus' life, the great hour in which he is supremely displayed had not yet come. The hour of his lifting up, what does that mean? Well, lifting up is another one of those, those dual meaning words here in the book of John. There are often things that are working at two levels, and this word lifting up can be very physically describing hoisting something up into the air. And it can also be used to talk about exalting someone or something, lifting them up in a sense of worship or exaltation, and Jesus means both. There is a time coming when he will be hoisted up, nailed to a cross, and at that time he will be displayed as exalted above all other things in all the earth. The cross and its related events, the arrest, the mock trial, the beatings, the actual execution, the resurrection, the activity afterwards, and then the raising him up back to heaven, all of that there at the end of his life, that displays something very unique about him, this dual nature. You can see it in a couple different ways. Physical, a, very, a physical tangible seeing, and a more theological, philosophical seeing. Physically, tangibly, we can look at the cross, we can look at those events, and we can marvel at them. How he conducted himself there, how he willingly embraces that. We can look at that and say, this is a man dying. He bleeds. He hurts. He dies. This is a man, but this is an extraordinary man. The centurion watching him die, who knew nothing about him, said, surely this is the Son of God. Something unique going on here. People don't embrace that. People fight back, take as many with them as they can. Maybe they give up when there's no hope. He's, he could have walked away at any given time and didn't. That's unique. How he cares for his persecutors. What physically happened as he died when the earth went dark and the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. How the dead, how the, the spirits of some of the patriarchs rose from the ground at his death. Some physical stuff happened that should get people's attention. This is more than just a man. Physically, he's a man who dies and much more than a man who dies. 
physically speaking. But theologically, there's even more. When you think about the cross and what it accomplishes, the dual nature of Jesus is seen and should be appreciated all the more. Let me approach it like this. What problem is the cross solving? What problem is the cross solving? The alienation of God from people. The separation of God and humankind. The Bible makes very clear that the eternal offense of each one of us against the eternal God has earned for itself an eternal punishment in an eternal hell. The Bible is very clear about that. When we sin, even little bitty sins, what we're doing is we are rejecting God, giving Him His marching orders and sending Him off and saying, I'm going to go my own way. And that is an offense against an infinite, eternal, almighty, holy being that earns for us each little itty-bitty sin, earns for us a, a correlating, eternal, everlasting punishment. Who you sin against, who you commit offenses against, matters. Think about, if you shoot a bird... If you shoot a bird, depending on where you shoot him, you might or might not get in some trouble. You take a shot at your neighbor, you will get in trouble. You take a shot at the President of the United States, you will get in even more trouble. Same action, different target, different penalty. We don't just sin against each other. We don't just commit little white lies and little itty-bitty sins here and there. We're sinning against the almighty, eternal God. And what that earns is an infinite penalty that will be poured out on me into an an infinite time, into all of eternity. It will be poured onto me. Or, or, I can substitute in another infinite payment. I can substitute, I can replace a different, eternal, infinite dying in place of mine. The dying of the infinite God come zipped together with a man. Christ's death is of infinite magnitude because he himself is of infinite magnitude. If he's just a man, the cross does not work. If he's just a man, the cross is of zero help to me. Even if he was a sinless man, somehow or another, the cross is of zero help to me. He is not an infinite payment if he is not an infinite being. Thank God that he is. His blood is sufficient to pay for me, for each of my sins, for your sins, for an infinite number of people's sins. But he has to be fully human also if he's going to stand in the place of human beings. The blood of bulls and goats didn't work. God demands justice, human blood for human blood, so to speak. He has to be an infinite being to pay for my infinite penalty, and he has to be a human to pay for my infinite penalty. And yours, because I'm a human. 
He has to be both, and he is. Anything less, the cross doesn't work. The dual nature of Jesus is required, and gloriously, God has provided it. The incarnation, the coming into flesh of the second person of the Trinity, is exactly what sinners like you and I need if we have any hope of communing with God now and forever. But even more than that, he can't just pay for my penalty and leave me there because I have to be more than forgiven to be in God's presence. I have to be righteous. And so do you. The full humanity of Jesus not just provides him as a substitute, but his full obedience throughout all of his life provides righteousness in front of God's law. He's a perfect, perfect, righteous man. What he does at the cross is he trades me. He takes my human sin and gives me human righteousness so that God looks at me and doesn't just see me forgiven, sees me as righteous, perfectly in his eyes. He is a substitute payment and he is a substitute righteousness. He and I trade by faith. It's a glorious thing. You can be righteous in God's eyes one way. One way. Only one way. Faith in this eternal God who became human. Anything else called Jesus is not Jesus. Anything else called Savior is not a Savior. Anything else called Lord is not the Lord. There was only one way to be joined to God in righteousness. Faith in this Jesus. of John 8, 28. The one who when lifted up shows his dual natures zipped together forever. The one who came to earth to die raised back to life, ascended back to heaven, and will come to judge every single one of us. Only one way to be saved. Trust Him. Specifically, Him. Rejoice and be glad that this Jesus of the Bible has come. My aim here this morning has been to help us think a little more clearly and and to think a little more deliberately about Jesus, I find that he becomes an idea for me pretty easily. A thought. A notion. He's a person. We're all going to meet him. You'll stand face to face with him People who were alive at his time will recognize him. He has a body. And he will judge you. He will cast you out to pay your own infinite penalty. Or he will welcome you in forever. Knowing that he himself paid it. We are meant to look at him. At him lifted up on the cross. And along with Thomas put our hands in the physical holes 
the physical holes and fall down and say, my Lord and my God, come to him. Draw near to him confidently now. Don't wait to meet him till then. It'll be too late then. Come now. Surrender your heart to him and trust him. And he will give you grace and mercy to help you now in your time of need. He will. Rejoice and be glad that this Jesus has come. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.